The world is in a climate crisis, and young people are the ones who will bear the brunt of its outcomes. So what can physics offer to solve some of the problems? Hello, I'm Gemma Milne. I'm a science writer and researcher, and I'm delighted to be bringing you this third series of Looking Glass, the podcast from the Institute of Physics. In this series, I'm asking what physics can do in the here and the now to stop climate change progressing at its current rate. I'll be joined by leading physicists and engineers who explain the issues that the elements of our planet are facing. We'll be talking about how physics can be applied to identify problems, as well as how the latest research and innovations are helping to find solutions. In this episode, we'll be focusing on Earth, not in terms of the planet, but in terms of the stuff below our feet. The health of our soil and ground is essential to life. Degradation of soil will lead to much of the planet becoming totally uninhabitable. No food, no homes. So what can physics offer to ensure that farmers can continue to farm, albeit more sustainably, and people can remain in their communities eating nutritious food? My guests today are former and serving presidents of the British Society of Soil Science, but their differing areas of research mean we can really understand the breadth of the issue. Dr. Jack Hannum describes herself as a dirt scientist, which really means she specialises in soil data, digital soil mapping and soil health. She leads the Soil Informatics Group and the Land Information System team at Cranfield University, who are responsible for the National Soil Data for England and Wales, and is currently working with the Welsh Government Soil Policy. Professor Sasha Mooney is a leading voice in soil physics and is based at the University of Nottingham. He leads the Hounsfield facility, which uses X-ray and CT scanning to provide 3D X-ray imaging of soil and plant matter and enables modelling for healthier soil futures. We started by going back to the most basic question. What even is soil? One way to think of soil is as the, the skin that lives on top of the Earth's surface. Uh, and that helps you to understand where the main inputs for soil come from. So soil comes from the geology, the parent material, um, uh, and that weathers and forms mineral grains. And those mineral grains interact with the material that lives on the surface, which is predominantly vegetation. So uh, that vegetation uh, begins to decompose over time and mixes and interacts with the minerals. So we get this mixture of organic material and mineral material combining together, um, being influenced by the impact of humans, being influenced by the impact of uh, our day-to-day processes, things like agriculture and industry and urbanization. But essentially, soil is a, is a mixture of, of organic and inorganic substances. And Jack, kind of building on um, Sasha's answer there, he mentioned about um, different kind of factors that impact our soil, um, humans, our processes, the environment, and so on and so forth. I wonder if you could give us a bit of insight into some of the biggest factors affecting our soil and, and what that kind of looks like in practice. You might look outside and think all oh, soil is the same, just the same brown, muddy stuff. Um, but it's actually quite different from one place to another, as Sasha was indicating. We have about 700 different soil types just in the UK. Uh, and this is down to the different um, factors under which soils form. Um, and those are things like the geology or the sediments that the soil is formed from, the organisms, so the plant material, uh, the climate under which the soil is formed, um, the topography or the relief. And also the time over which the, the soil has formed, so how long it's kind of been developing on the land surface. 
And then a, a final, you know, large influence also is um, human activity um, on, on the land surface. So that those factors all interact sort of naturally to form different types of soil and they all have slightly different properties. I've read that scientists can't agree on what we mean when we talk about soil health. Can you tell us why that is and maybe give, a, give us a bit of context um, or a bit of an insight into these, these debates um, that go on in the sort of soil science world? What most people want is one measurement for something. So, you know, how healthy you are. And, and as we said, that soils are very different. They have very different properties. There's lots of different things. It's a complex system. Um, and if you think about when you go to the doctor, so they might, you know, indicate that you're healthy, but there will be a number of different measurements that they might take your blood pressure, they might take some tests, they might get you to do some exercises, all these sorts of things. And it's the combination of lots of different properties or characteristics that will give you an overall indication of health. And I think that's where we've come unstuck is because, you know, most people would like to have a, a, a magic thing that you take into the field, you know, zap the soil and try and understand whether that soil is healthy or not. But you need to understand the context. So going back to the, this variability of soils, naturally, soils will have, you know, different properties or um, different abilities to function in different ways. So some will be better for growing crops, others will be better naturally for storing carbon, for example. So your background level is very different. A bit like people, we all have different background levels of health. The soils are very similar in that way. I really liked, um, Sasha, when you said earlier that it's the, the skin of the earth. I hadn't thought about it like that before. And I think that's a really great analogy because when you're talking about healthy skin, well, healthy skin means different things with people at different stages of their life, people from different parts of the world and so on and so forth. So I suppose it's the same when it comes to um, when it comes to soil. There is so much that we know about what might constitute a healthy soil. So we know, for example, that healthy soils have to have good mixes of, of air and water in order to function. So, you know, soils that are, are uh, saturated or or are um, uh, droughty are obviously not going to be in, in an optimum state of health. Uh, we know that there are things that we can do to soils which damage them, which impact on their health. So degrading soils through compaction, degrading soils through contamination, these are things that are you know, likely to impact on their health. So in some respects, it doesn't really matter if we, if we can't put a number or a particular measurement on health. But if we can understand, you know, what, what is good soil and what is bad soil, then that gives us the opportunity to, to change our management and to adapt to that changing climate as well, to try and promote what would be, I guess, considered healthy soil practices. And, you know, we, we do have a lot of understanding of, of, of what that is and where we need to go to do that. Maybe let's zoom back a little bit. Um, what's at stake here? You know, why, why do we need to care about soil? To do with climate change, of course, but more generally, you know, like, of course, care about the planet, care about the earth and so on and so forth. But really give us a bit of a flavour of what's at stake if we don't manage um, soil health, particularly now. And I'd love to hear both of your points on this, but we'll start with you, Sasha. Well, the most obvious and most pressing, 95% of our food originates in some form from soil. So with, without without healthy uh, soil, we don't have food and we don't have healthy people. But soils, you know, undertake many other functions. You know, they they store store carbon, 
you know, they play a large role in what happens with respect to uh, global warming potential. They are very important for filtration of water. You know, they're very important for um, uh, all the work that takes place with respect to industry, engineering, uh, roads, building foundations. You know, soils under a, s such an enormous part of our of our lives. But I don't think that you can go too far without first thinking food, and obviously that's that's agriculture. There are more microbes in a teaspoon of soil than there are people on the planet. So we have this sort of living complex system that is almost kind of unseen in a way. We see the product of that through food production, but it's operating as a very complex system. It sits between the atmosphere and the hydrosphere, those are the water system, and it plays an integral part in, both, in regulating both of those as well. Why is soil such an important part of the conversation within climate change? Is it that climate change is, is ruining and, and making our soil not as healthy or, or it, can soil then also be used as a, as, a, as a measure or as an indicator of different changes within our climate? Jack, tell us a little bit about the, the sort of climate conversation specifically. A lot of the debate that's happening in the soil science world is, is looking at you know, climate change mitigation. So a lot of carbon is is stored in soils. So more carbon is stored in soils than vegetation that it supports, so the trees and the veg, you know, and the plants. So there, there there's a there's a debate about maintaining that stock of carbon in soil. So not to release that to exacerbate global warming by releasing that carbon essentially as CO2 back into the atmosphere. To, to maintain soils that have high carbon content, so things like um, peat and peatlands, to make sure that they are in a good state, that they are storing a large amount of carbon. But also trying to restore some of our soils that have lost carbon over um, a period of time, uh, through mainly through land use change um, and you know, through kind of agricultural practices that have, have made that carbon breakdown over time. You know, First of all, we need to stop burning fossil fuels. You know, soil is not going to be the answer to that, but it plays a small part in, in trying to then, you know, ensure that that carbon is, is kept within that soil system. And, and Sasha, going back to you then and, and thinking a bit more about what's happening within the world of soil right now, what sort of changes are, are, are needing made for the climate and for human health and, and animal health, as you mentioned. Let's talk about food system. How does the current food system then affect soil health? What is it that we're doing that is adverse in terms of soil health or what could we be doing um, to make our, our soil better? Intensive agriculture has had some fairly you know, uh, drastic and, and uh, uh, negative impacts on, on soil. Um, and uh, you know, soil degradation is, is wide scale uh, globally. Um, and uh, we've mentioned some of the things that, that account for this. One of them is, is compaction. Uh, agricultural machinery over the years has, has grown larger, has grown heavier, uh, and that can lead to very significant compaction. And a, a slight rule, rule of thumb really is that for, for soils, it, it's very, very easy to, to uh, degrade and destroy them. So you know, in one afternoon, you can, you can destroy a soil structure. But it can take a long time to to regenerate and to restore soils. Often, you know, uh, years and even decades um, to in order to do that. So, 
Um, things like uh, compaction have been really, really negative in terms of the impacts on on soil quality and health. Also, soil erosion is a, is a major, major problem. Uh, we've got more use to uh, large scale agricultural practices across much wider areas. Um, large areas of soil can often be exposed and open to to weathering. Uh, during conventional agricultural practices, this can lead to soil either being lost by wind erosion and blown away or washed away by by rain. And again, once that happens, it's very rare that that soil gets returned back to to its former um, practice. But you know, there's there's also issues with um, uh, pollution, not only from from agrochemicals, but you know, also from from industry. And and similarly, you know, remediation of of soils can can take a long, long time. Jack, thinking about um, some of the big topics in in climate change, specifically when we talk about soil, one of them is talking about um, unlivable areas of the planet and, you know, soil degradation to such a degree that we can't grow food in certain places and people are not able to effectively live there. Tell us a little bit about this conversation alongside the fact that there is also a lot of hope and a lot of good work being done in terms of the future of soil. Yeah, so I think there's evidence already for climate change shifting the ranges of habitats, but that also is reflected in where you can conduct agriculture also. So there's some areas that have been limited either by um, reduction or depletion of nutrients from the soil but also the availability of water for crops. So this is a, you know, this is a large area um, where uh, agriculture has be- in the past has been able to survive through irrigation, through the extra water in the system, but that water is now restricted or not available. So you are unable then to sustain those crops in those areas. So there are certain areas of the world where, if you like, that are in um, areas where it's peripheral already for growing crops because you're augmenting the soil with additional nutrients, you're augmenting the soil with additional water. And those areas are already starting to see crop failures because of drought or through insufficient uh, nutrients from the plants. So those areas will probably shift to becoming ineffective for for food production. But there's an you know there's an imbalance globally. So if you look then to maybe northern Europe, you start to see shifting ranges. Let's say in in you know in the UK, for example, where the climate is warming, so you you then are able to grow crops in areas where you weren't able to grow crops before. So you might expand the cropland in the UK because the climatic conditions are are, um, more effective. But then you still have this issue with, you know, where does that water come from? We already irrigate crops in the UK, um, high value crops in in eastern England. And we know that through, you know, climate modelling, that those areas are going to become more arid in, in the future. So that, you know, there are, are probably some, some opportunities in some places, but in many places there will be real issues with, with trying to grow food. And Sasha, what, what do we do about all that? Well, I think, I think this is where the, uh, we need support and help from our politicians because this is where the arresting the, um, the ascent of temperature increase has become so important because, you know, we, we have a good track record in, uh, in supporting uh, change to environmental management um 
And so, uh, yes, when uh, when the climate continues to change in in the coming years, there'll be some winners and losers when it comes to to crop production and and diversification. But with with time, you know, there is the ability to 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 experiment, to test, and to implement new management change. But not if the change in climate is so rapid that we can't contend with that. And so that's why making changes to practice and being able to reduce the the temperature increase is going to be so important. Fortunately, some of the areas that are experiencing some of these problems, and as Jack said, water scarcity is is already a huge issue in many areas of the globe. Um, you know, there there have not necessarily been other environmental issues impacting on that at the same time. But but if we do get to a stage of you know what's been previously called perfect storm, you know, which is you know you know reduce reduce water, higher temperatures. Uh, increased pests and damage, et cetera, et cetera, then then it will will obviously become very, very challenging. And that's that's what we have to avoid. And th- and that's why, you know, we we need to look to our our politicians and uh, to really hope when they get the opportunities at, at COP summits to to make changes that are gonna benefit all of us. So let's let's shift a little bit to talking about physics. This of course is the the Institute of Physics podcast. And it sounds like that there's a job in terms of understanding what's going on with soil, regenerating that soil, and of course preventing um, you know bad things happening to the soil in the first place. So, how does physics fit in to um, understanding the problem and trying to solve it and try and prevent um, prevent things from making things worse? Sasha, let's start with you. This is my favourite question. So, soil physics is is one of the the fundamental uh, um, areas of soil science along with soil biology and, and soil chemistry. In fact, sometimes, uh, it's, I, in my view, it's been perceived a little bit as the poorer cousin, but I, I think it's the most exciting part. Um, traditionally it's been more focused, just, uh, understanding the role of water in soils. And so a lot of our understanding of soil physics concerns with, um, you know, how, how do soils hold on to water as they, they drain, uh, what happens under droughty conditions? How much water do we need to be available to plants and to you know to ensure optimum plant growth? But actually, soil physics is much more than than just water. Um, and in particular, uh, a very important aspect of it that that I work on concerns soil structure. Uh, and soil structure is effectively the building blocks of soil. So how do those particles uh, be arranged within within a soil? And and what happens? in most soils is that particles become stuck together by various chemical, physical, and biological processes, and they form little units that we call aggregates. Uh, and those aggregates are a little bit like the bricks of a building. So a soil is composed of lots of aggregates that are all stacked together uh, in a very complex way, uh, in a very dynamic way. So they, they change quite rapidly over time. Uh, and they change in response to the, the, how the soil has been managed. But that aggregated structure uh, creates a network of pore spaces. And those pore spaces are the gaps through which everything moves in soil. So this soil structure controls how water flows through soil. It controls how fertilizers and pesticides move through soil. It controls how earthworms and other microbes move through the soil. It controls where the chemical reactions in soil take place. So it's a really important um, part of soil because it in- involves it, it really regulates and controls so many 
really important soil processes. Um, and uh, my particular research group and, and many others uh, use x-rays to, to visualize uh, the soil structure. That's kind of like the gold standard. But actually, you can learn a lot by just going out into your garden or into a field, taking a spade, digging up the soil and looking at how it's been structured and stuck together. And, and actually, it's, it's a very useful way of uh, being able to assess the, the quality or the health of the soil as well. Why are we using CT scans to look at soil? Is it more still trying to understand these structures? Really, all it does is it gives us the x-ray vision that we need to look inside something without breaking it. Uh, and you know, who doesn't want to look inside something without breaking it? Uh, so uh, we we have X-ray CT scanners at, at Nottingham that are dedicated to to soil science, but they're very similar in the principle to the ones that you would see in hospital. You know, a, a sample is placed in front of a of an X-ray source. The sample rotates. The X-rays are passed through the through the sample, uh, and we collect the uh, the attenuation or the retardation of the X-rays on a detector, and that allows us to look at the, the density of the materials inside. And the reason why it works so well for soils is soils are full of materials of very different densities. So those aggregates that I mentioned earlier, the organic material, the mineral material, the plant roots, the, you know, the organic carbon, the water, all of these have really different attenuations to x-rays. So we're able to produce beautiful 3D models to see what the structure uh, looks like. Jack, let's, let's turn to you. I mean, you're not a physicist specifically, but I wonder if you give us a bit of context as to how all this uh, interesting and amazing stuff that Sasha's telling us about that's happening in the physics world, how does that interact with your work um, and, and offer solutions to some of the biggest problems that affect soil and enable data gathering and so on and so forth? Give us that, that real world uh, consequence or impact. Yeah, I think it's like anything where you're able to catch an image of a complex system. So before we were trying to describe the soil as you know the, the structure of the soil, the arrangement of the particles, and drawing them, but we 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 didn't have an image. We didn't have a real life image of this complex system that we were trying to describe. And you know, Sasha's point about the the gaps in the soil are actually just as important as the the solid bits. So where water and air and the biology and the chemistry can move, uh, and it, it has really enabled us to try and understand at that very sort of small scale how all these different components are interacting. And, you know, we can use the imagery, as, as Sasha illustrated, to actually identify sort of hot spots of activity. So where where is that carbon um, being turned over by the biology? How is the biology interacting with the minerals how are the plant roots interacting with the soil and all of this we're, we're actually able to see now and and i think this is the big you know the big reveal if you like uh, at that scale where we can start to really Im not just imagine those processes but but see them in real life as well so what impact does that then have in terms of what we do next and by we <laughs> i mean regular people but of course farmers um people who make fertilizers chemical companies um any what big industri big industrial plants so on and so forth you know having this information having these visuals um how does that then change behavior and i suppose we'll, we'll get on to talking specifically about regenerative and conservation farming but um you know give us a bit of context as to how that information gets through jack you imagine the soil is, is like a sponge. So if you squish it, 
you're going to reduce all of that that the, the space, so the air and the water, and you can see that in the images. So I can take a sponge out to the field and do this, but actually showing an image, to, you know, between a soil that has a good structure, there's a lot of aeration, there's enough space for biology and water to move compared to one that has has been compacted by machinery. It's, it's, these are really strong messages. And you can use those and also, you know, a spade as well. So you can also see that structure manifested in, in the in the gross structure of the soils when you take a spadeful out, you can see that that compacted soil and you can then begin to explain, you know, how these different processes are being affected by, by you know, the lack of air and water and, and, and oxygen. Stasha, let's bring you in here as well then. Tell us a bit about how this understanding is is changing the way that specifically, for instance, how, how we should be doing farming and thinking about farming moving forward, considering all these negative impacts. Yeah, so I can I can give you an example of uh, of about zero tillage, which you may have heard of, which is a key part of conservation and regenerative agriculture. So uh, the concept here is that you that you don't plow the soil, uh, you leave the structure intact, and that you you directly drill the seeds into this undisturbed uh, soil. Uh, and uh, you know there are supposed to be a number of benefits of this, which include you know potentially retaining carbon and, and reducing emissions but also uh, minimizing the use of machinery and, uh, and cost of fuel, et cetera. So uh, we recently did some, some work where we, we took some soil samples from, from farms that had been practicing uh, zero tillage and compared them with soils that had been cultivated or plowed. Um, the soils had to be very, very closely located together because soils are so variable that if you were to take samples from from different farms or different fields they would be slightly different and you wouldn't be able to really compare them so we looked at soils that were almost side by side but the only difference was that some had been plowed and some had not the advantage of the the physics technology here the x-ray imaging is that when you have an image you can use that to generate numbers and so you can do things like measure the size of the pores, you can measure the shape of the pores and the connection of those pores. And then we can relate these data to conventional things that we're used to doing in the laboratory as soil scientists, like measuring the organic carbon, measuring the greenhouse gas emissions from the soil. And what we found was that if you don't plow the soil, um, initially, that soil will be will be quite dense, and there won't be very many pore spaces the pore spaces there will be really, really small. But if you leave the soil over time, and over time here is several years, um, eventually a new structure will emerge, a structure that's created by the organisms that live in the soil. So these are the earthworms, the fungi, and the bacteria. And what that will do is create this new structure, which is not as porous as if the soil had been plowed. Um, So greenhouse gas emissions from the soil are, are not as great, but this new structure is very well connected uh, and that's because, you know, organisms like to move down the same channels. And that connected structure means that those soils behave really well when it comes to things like infiltration and drainage. So over time, a new natural soil structure develops, which is just as good as the structure created by the plowing. And in fact, even better when it comes to offering benefits for greenhouse gas emissions. Now, of course, 
it's not all about greenhouse gas emissions. It's, it's about production of food and filtration of water as well. But it's really interesting that we've been able to visualize this new structure that's highly complex, highly connected, but actually performs really well. And so that's one potential of using the imaging technology where we can go and say, hey, you know, this might be a potential way of having our cake and eating it here if we can also uh, get similarity in, in food production from these soils by simply uh, changing the way we currently manage them. What you said right at the end there, simply changing the way we manage them. I think sometimes, um, a lot of the time, actually, when we're talking about climate change, um, changing our processes, solutions, and so on and so forth, the debate is always um, kind of centred around what are all the different pros and cons and how are we impacting people, the economy, the environment, and trying to weigh it all up, costs and so on and so forth. And it sounds like what you're saying that by going and, you know, showing the sponge or showing these images, it's almost like obvious, uh, it's beyond obvious that this is a sensible thing to do. Is there issues, for instance, with how we actually change the processes in order to do it? Or is it expensive for farmers to have to do things differently and, and so on and so forth? Or is this more of a just getting the info out there problem? I wonder if you give us that context. So for sure, it's it, it's it's definitely not not simple. Uh, and the most important thing is to realize that you know that this is uh, interdisciplinary science. So you know this isn't just about about soils. This isn't just about uh, agriculture or or environmental science. You know uh, this this is about uh, you know the socioeconomics associated with the production of food. It's a you know it's associated with financial implications. And so there is no no easy solution to this. Um, uh, if a farmer wanted to to change practice, it's not simply about, uh, you know, today I'm not going to to plow. It's about ensuring that you have the equipment available to do, to do the direct drilling. It's about uh, dealing with other potential issues. So one issue with zero tillage that's been identified is increased likelihood of weeds. Uh, a benefit of plowing is, is, Often that uh, that that weed uh, can be suppressed, and and there's some research suggesting that zero tillage can lead to increases in that. So there are many different aspects uh, of this, and and what I just briefly explained to you is, is just one potential part of the problem. And the next stage is to then bring in a wider group of people to to look at this, and 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 that is the the best and the you know almost the worst part of being a soil scientist. Sometimes you know we 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 think that we've come up with a, a solution. Uh, and we haven't, but the best part is that we're a really important part of this jigsaw. So it's not about what soils, uh, how soils can be managed um, to mitigate the impacts of climate change. It's more about how can soil scientists contribute to the understanding and efforts to try and mitigate climate change. Jack, let's let's bring you in on this then and, and thinking about... Um... I guess moving forward, the future, um, when it comes to to climate change, specifically kind of soil and agriculture. I've read about the idea that there are only sixty harvests left, uh, seemingly. I'd love to hear what you you think about that. You know, what's the reality of this idea of there only being sixty years of harvesting left for us? Yeah, no one's quite sure exactly where that number came from. Somewhere on the back of an envelope, I think. 
uh, I think it was, you know, it was based on, um, so there are some degradation processes that in very localised areas will be quite extreme. But for example, soil erosion, you'll get significant erosion event from a particular part of a field. So I think that was how it was calculated. It was back calculated to say, well, if we're losing X, you know, um, centimetres of topsoil during these events and the soil is only 80 centimetres deep, it's going to disappear. But this is not happening everywhere in, and it's not widespread everywhere. There are issues of degradation and pockets of degradation. So where there are high risk areas, then, you know, those, those sorts of mitigation processes are needed. Um, in terms of where soil scientists sit, I think, you know, we're, as Sasha said, we're, we're part of this jigsaw. So this kind of shift to changing farming practices, you know, we're, we're part of that. And an important part of that is, is also, you know, policy drivers that will enable farmers to move across to different systems. There are loads and loads of brilliant peer-to-peer um, -peer farmer networks that exist both in the UK and around the world. And they are sharing a lot of this information. So is it working on my farm? What happened when you went to zero till? What are the issues? So there, there's a real um, opportunity now for soil scientists to, to be part of that conversation. So bringing the research um, you know, out of the universities into the field for the farmers and likewise the other way where there are particular issues from the farming community that we can then research. So use, you know, some of those really cool imaging techniques to answer some of the questions where certain things perhaps are not working. They're trying to adopt a different system, a different ploughing system. And why, why doesn't it work with my soil and these kind of crops, for example? So there's an opportunity to kind of, for, hopefully for us to sort of sit there and, and, and join the dots between, between these different groups. I think the, uh, the actual number um, is not so relevant. Um, although I think it served a very good job in getting people's attention. But the key point is that uh, modern day agricultural practices are generally leading to net loss of soil. You know, so soil takes a long time to form and it can be lost very, very quickly. Uh, the soil that's lost is usually the most valuable soil as well. The soil at the top, the most fertile, the most useful for plant production. So, you know, it is important that we realize that if we do not change practice, that that best quality soil that we have uh, will be lost. And at, at some point, and for some soils, and as Jack said, it will be quicker for some than others. We do need to reverse this process of net loss of soil where we can. I want to end uh, our discussion thinking about optimism and uh, the future. And, you know, at the end of the day, when we're talking about science and its role in society, there's an understanding point there, but I think there's also a big point around how to make it better, right? That That's what fuels a lot of people um, in their work. So, um, Jack, let's start with you. You're incoming president of, of the, the Soil, British Soil Association. What what gives you hope and, and optimism or something that excites you in your research or your organisation's research that's going to have a positive impact on soil health and, and frankly, keeps getting you out of bed in the morning to move forward? that there are more people interested in soil, that they're not just soil scientists. So, you know, the, the small group of us that are, have our heads stuck down the X-ray machine, but there are many people, in society, and this is where, you know, soil affects all of us, not least because it provides the food that we eat. But there, there is this momentum now with, with, other, with people getting interested in soil, either through, you know, growing food themselves 
or thinking about you know carbon storage in soils and the um, relationship with, with climate change. So we have it. My optimism is this opportunity. So not necessarily as soil scientists, but, but, but there are so many more people that can become soil scientists because we're starting to see this this interest in in this complex system and how to manage it more sustainably. So that is the optimism, I guess, is that people are aware that the that degradation is happening and that there are certain tools in the toolbox that we can use to try to mitigate the effects that we, we've seen over the last sort of decades or centuries. Sasha, I'm going to come to you with the same question. I mean, you've, you've also been known to say that despite everything, this is the most exciting time to be a soil physicist too. So, so what do you mean by your excitement and your hope and your optimism? And I've said that for 20 years as well. Uh, but every year I say, it, I, I really, I, I, I really mean it. Um, I think I think what's really clear is that soils sit at the heart of the of the key issues that we've got to contend with at the minute. So you know, if we look at food security, climate change, you know, cost of living crisis, soils are are at the heart of all of this. So Godfrey Hounsfield, who's the inventor of X-ray CT, said something like, uh, "You know, each day brings with it a new discovery. What are you going to discover?" Uh, and I think you know, that that's a great incentive to to the future researchers of today. And what a lovely note to end on. Um, Jack, Sasha, thank you so much for coming and chatting all things soil with us today. Um, I certainly have a, a heightened appreciation for what's beneath my feet um, and hopefully the listeners listening in will feel the same. So thanks very much for coming and joining us. Thanks very much. Thanks, Gemma. Huge thanks to my guests, Dr. Jack Hannam and Professor Sasha Mooney. Next time, we'll be moving through the elements to look at fire. More than just a metaphor, the planet is burning and we need to know how to harness fire in order to stop it raising everything to the ground. Make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss it. Looking Glass is a chalk and blade production for the Institute of Physics. The producers are Fatuma Kera and Rosie Stouffer with editorial guidance from Sarah Stolars. The executive producer is Ruth Barnes. The original music is by Alex Portfelix with mixing by Nassan Da Silva. The executive producer for the IOP is Louise Swan and the series was commissioned by Rachel Youngman. The Institute of Physics is campaigning for more young people from more diverse backgrounds to study physics. For more information, please visit iop.org forward slash limitless.